everybody, this is James Lindsay, and you're listening to the New Discourses Podcast. This episode, I think, is going to be a little bit different. I was walking around in the airport the other day, and I got a message from somebody, and obviously I've put a lot of information out about this concept of Gnosticism and its relevance to Marxism and woke, and also the related concept, which is Gnostic in a broader sense, of the Hermetic uh, transformational ancient mystery religion or esoteric religion and its relevance through Hegel and Marx and so on historically to form what we understand as woke. And when we look at the 17 sustainable development goals to transform our world, we hear that language. We hear those ideas. We hear the idea that certain people are going to be able to set themselves up and direct how the world is meant to develop. And they're going to transform our world into what it was apparently supposed to be, or what it could be, or what it should be. And I got thinking about this phrase that I came across in the message that somebody sent me about the tragedy of being. And I'm walking back and forth in the airport, kind of killing a little bit of time, um, getting a little bit of like halfway pretend exercise on my travel schedule. And I'm thinking about this phrase, the tragedy of being. And what made me think about it is the fact that, yes, the tragedy of being is, in fact, kind of like the Gnostic impulse. They see the effect of existence itself as a tragedy. Uh, but then at the same time, I had a little bit of dissonance that made me hang on those words because that's not actually how Gnostics view the world. Gnostics view being as a prison which is not the same as a tragedy. It's slightly different. And I started thinking through these ideas, mulling through these ideas, and I, I just kind of wanted to do this podcast to explore some dispositions on being. Yeah, it's a, you know, on being is such a big topic and lots of philosophers have tried to tackle this ultimate ontological question, but I don't want to talk about what is the nature of reality. The nature of being isn't that presumptuous. Wouldn't you have to be somebody to think you're going to talk about the ultimate nature of reality? Uh, oh, you've got it figured out, do you? I know I sound like Jordan Peterson right now. Maybe I should do his voice. Oh, you've got it figured out, do you? Uh, well, um, I want to talk about dispositions, Instead, this is actually something that I've been thinking about a lot. I've been thinking about trying to understand the disposition, the mindset of the people who have adopted various perspectives on life, uh, the woke perspective, the um, transhausen by proxy, this idea that we're going to transition our children. What's their mindset? What's going on in their head? Um, the super whatever we call elites, the, as they pronounce themselves, the elites of the world, the elites of the world, trust each other more and more, but the people trust us less and less. What's their mindset? What's going on? Because I think that if we don't understand the mindset behind what's going on, then it becomes very difficult to speak to it. And if we, under, if we do understand the mindset, not only can we speak to it, but we can intervene because dispositions toward reality are, are something that can be changed. These are things that can change. If you have certain dispositions toward reality, what we might call the Gnostic disposition, you believe that reality is a prison, that being itself is a prison, that's going to have all sorts of consequences in how you engage life. But if you can be, uh, you know, 
shown that that's not only not true, but it's actually a disposition that you are in effect, in, in some sense, choosing, maybe unintentionally, then you can change your mind and you can see the world differently. We hear about these things all the time about people changing the way that they see the world. I'll give you an example. I was on a panel the other day at a conference and um, we were all talking about uh, the elites. And I said, I think people really need to understand their mindset, their disposition. Why on earth would they want to destroy the middle class? Why on earth would they want to destroy Western productivity? I mean, maybe they believe and probably to some degree they believe this idea of an unsustainable future, that the world is going to collapse, there's not enough material resources, but I don't think that's their main disposition. I think that some, I think that there's also an element where whether that's true or not, they see themselves having an opportunity to become saviors, so they have this kind of weird messiah complex, a weird form of grandiose narcissism driving them, and so they have to convince themselves the world is in desperate danger, and if they don't step in and become the heroes of the world, then well, Maybe something bad will happen, but if they do step in and change everything, they can pat themselves on the back, whether it was real or fake, and they can be seen as big heroes. They want to be the big heroes of the world, the messiahs, the saviors. And um, I think that's part of their mentality. But more than that, I tried to be tried to relate to the audience. There are lots of times in, I think, modern life where we hit this moment. And so what do I mean with this moment that shows you the disposition of the elites? Maybe you're driving in traffic. I used that example on the panel. And you're just like, if all these stupid cars would get off the road, I could get where I was going, couldn't I? And you get really pissed off that there's all these freaking cars on the road. There's too many damn cars on the road. Maybe if it was harder for people to be able to drive and we had more restrictions on who can drive, the road wouldn't be so damn clogged up. Maybe I could strap something on the front of my car, go like Spy Hunter back in the video game in the 80s and blow them up and get them out of my way. This is a very common traffic impulse. Maybe you're sitting on an airplane. I've given this example on Twitter and a baby starts crying and you're like, they shouldn't let babies on planes. Maybe they should have certain planes that babies can go on, but most flights aren't allowed to have babies, which is a pretty anti-human, anti-family position to adopt because you're somewhat annoyed that a baby's having a moment on an airplane, which is admittedly babies, first of all, have moments all the time. And second of all, it's a pretty weird environment for a baby. Can't possibly know what the heck's going on. And do you think that maybe they sh families should have to deal with the fact that they're not allowed to fly to connect with one another? This is this mindset. You go to the beach and it's crowded. And you used to be able to go to this beach maybe and just enjoy yourself, just like you used to be able to drive on the road. And it wasn't that crowded and you could get around and you didn't have to sit in traffic or deal with jerks everywhere you go. Wouldn't it just be great if you could just get some of these stupid, poor people who don't belong there, especially ones that are kind of rednecking it up out of the way? That's the mindset of the elites, that they believe that they're entitled to this world and all of its greatest stuff the nicest vacation spots, the prettiest beaches, the nicest travel, without having to deal with a bunch of rednecks who the middle class who don't really need to be there, that are taking away from the natural beauty, that are mucking it up, that are talking, that are partying, that are riding their stupid jet skis or whatever it is that they're doing. That's the mentality. If you add in this mentality that maybe, maybe the ecosystem is going to collapse, this Malthusian idea that they've seemed to latch onto. 
you know, at the Club of Rome or whatever, limits to growth, the degrowth movement going beyond growth. If you take this idea that maybe we're going to run out of these materials and the good life is going to go away because the ecosystems are going to collapse. Maybe you believe that, maybe you don't, but add that in. Imagine you do believe it for a minute, add that in, and you believe that the reason we're wasting all of our resources so rednecks can ride their jet skis and clog up the beach and be in traffic and be at the stupid grocery store and fly their babies on airplanes, and you think, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm going to lose all of this world that I'm entitled to as a super elite rich person who can do whatever I want because these stupid poor people are mucking it up for everybody, so maybe if we just got rid of that, we could keep our elite fancy life. And now we see their mindset. Now we understand their disposition. And that is comprehensible. Maybe we could turn to like the reactionary group, uh, not the woke, but the reaction to the woke, these right-wingers who are desperate. They think the society's already failed. And they've hit this level of desperation and fear. You can tell that they're afraid because they want to grab control. They, they think society's already failed, so you know that they're just completely faithless. You know that they're completely demoralized in the communist sense, but they think that they can make this last grasp for power and control everybody and take all this power. They're despairing. They're afraid. They don't have confidence. They don't have faith. They lack genuine hope. They are, if they're Christian, it's sort of ironic with this, say, Christian nationalism movement because they're completely at odds with what the book of Hebrews teaches about faith. They are very much the um, faithless wandering in the book of Numbers chapter 14 uh, who uh, don't see where God has delivered the Israelites over and over and over again, and they can't believe that, well, maybe God's going to deliver them this time too. And so God gets super pissed off at him if you read Numbers 14, and is like, well, y'all don't get anything. Um, and he wants to wipe them out, and it's all pretty intense. It's kind of interesting that there's this, but what they are is they're desperate. They're afraid. And if you don't understand that they've been provoked into desperate fear, you have no, no chance of understanding why they're reactionary. The thing is, is they're reacting because they don't know what else to do. They feel like they have no other options. So dispositional understanding is very important. But the woke Transhausen by proxy thing, as it's sometimes called, this, uh, by the way, that is a um, reframing of a real mental illness called Munchausen's by proxy. And Munchausen's syndrome is where you... Uh, it's a form almost of narcissism, or maybe exactly of narcissism. I don't have it in front of me. I'm kind of going off the cuff here, where you seek attention and sympathy by making yourself sick. So you drink a little poison every morning, and, oh, I'm so sick, and people come in, oh, poor you, you're so sick, and you get all this positive attention and help. That's Munchausen syndrome. Well, there's a Munchausen syndrome by proxy, where instead of making yourself sick, you make usually your child sick. It is overwhelmingly prevalent in uh, disordered females and virtually absent in males, although not 100% absent. And the idea there is that um, if you make your daughter or your son a little bit sick, you poison them a little bit, which, by the way, is featured, for example, in the movie The Sixth Sense. It's one of the stories. Uh, then, oh my gosh, the mother of a sick child, that's so hard. Well, now you have the mother of trans children, and that's what I mean by transhousing by proxy. You have parents mopping up status and virtue and pity and support by proving their virtue by being so inclusive that they're transitioning their own children. And there may be other reasons at times, but if we understand that, we understand a lot. Another reason, though, is, in fact, 
that there is a paralyzing fear in many people that are in their 30s, 40s, and 50s with children, you know, school-age children now. There's a deep paralyzing fear that was strongly pushed as a kind of almost psychological active measure in the 1980s and 1990s especially about the exclusive social conservative Christian parent, especially father, who would reject their gay children. No son of mine is going to be gay. I will disown my kids if they're gay, blah, 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 that whole thing. That got whipped into a boogeyman. And so many of these hyper-inclusive liberal wine moms are trying to prove that they're not that parent. They're mopping up virtue. It's important to understand that mindset. Um, Well, as far as being itself goes, I'd go into the woke, but that's Gnostic and hermetic. So we're going to be able to go into that this way uh, by talking about being itself. Dispositions toward what is existence and what is our relationship to existence or really what does existence mean for us and i was thinking about it and we have to accept i think the fact of being that being is maybe we're just simulations vats and a brain or no i said that wrong brains in a vat or whatever else but it doesn't matter because our experience of the world simply still is whatever it means to be being is happening. We're aware of being. Even if we're to get philosophical about it, anti-realist, being is still something we experience. If we're realist, being is what is. It, is. it just is. It's the fact of being. And so we have this thing, being, existence, and we have to make sense of it, and we tr- have to understand our relationship to it. I don't actually think it's strictly true that we do, but I think that as meaning-making entities, it's exactly what we do. And the meaning-making entities put that meaning into a story, and they tell a story about what existence means and who we are, and thus we understand who we are within existence. This is a fundamentally religious behavior, by the way. So the disposition, while it is possible to hold, I think almost as a scientific ideal, but not necessarily a scientific reality, is this kind of empirical disposition, a purely perfectly empirical disposition, that which is simply is. And I mean, I actually sympathize pretty strongly with that one, but it's not, it's useful in its ways, but there's, there's, that's not an interpretive overlay that tells a story. I mean, it could tell you the story of the explorer or the navigator or the scientist, the discoverer of what is, um, But I think that we end up with dispositional overlays. I think back to, for example, the very empirical wings, empiricist wings, I should say, of the, say, New Atheism movement. And there was this huge effort to talk about the beauty of science, all the beauty and complexity that science reveals in the world. And there was this call almost to awe and uh, wonder. And there, there are books about this that were written within the context of the New Atheist movement, the awe and wonder of reality. I mean, Richard Dawkins wrote a book, everybody that knows of him knows about the God delusion, but he wrote another book later called The Greatest Show on Earth, talking about the biological complexity and how it came to be and what that means and how it's just so awe-inspiring. And he gave many interviews about how awe-inspiring the world is and the scientific understanding peels back layers. So the empirical approach is still related to these dispositions. And as a matter of fact, Everybody thinks they're dealing with evidence. Everybody thinks they're dealing with evidence. 
So interpretive overlays, you could call them if we wanted to get a little philosophical, abstract, phenomenological, but interpretive overlays on these um, the, the facts of being, the facts of life, the facts of experience, uh, kind of, in my opinion, maybe I'm leaving something out. This is just an experimental line of thought. Feel free to expand on it. I'm not claiming that I've figured out some big thing. I'm just, actually, this podcast is silly. I'm In a way, I'm just kind of exploring an idea I had, like a brain fart in an airport based on something I read in my text messages. But uh, at any rate, I think there are four. Big picture, there are four interpretive overlays on reality, and these are the dispositions toward being. And um, each of these dispositions, or maybe not all of them, I don't know, I haven't thought through it that far, and I'm not trying to be categorical or systematic here, and not trying to lay out a theology, I'm just exploring a thought with you all verbally. But I think each one probably has, if we might use the phrasing, a dark side and a light side. Um, maybe that's not the case. Maybe there's sometimes only a dark side, and maybe sometimes there's only a light side. I sort of suspect that one of them that I'll talk about only has a light side, but I'm not entirely sure. I haven't thought about it that far. And this isn't the moment. This is just an exploration. Uh, I know I just sounded like Bob Ross or something, but this is the Bob Ross podcast, and we're just going to put happy little thoughts and you can imagine other things. And if you make a mistake, that's okay, because we'll just turn it into a mountain with our scraper and cover it up with a happy little tree. But anyway, so these four dispositions, as I kind of hinted at already, one of them is the Gnostic disposition, which is the prison of being. The being itself is a prison. And a second one that sounds the same but is different but is related is the tragedy of being. So the prison of being and the tragedy of being are not the same thing. A tragedy is a type of story, but being locked in a prison is kind of a different story. But then there's another disposition, I think, which is the comedy of being. So you think of the classic forms, the, the two classic forms of story, of drama. What are they? They're comedy and tragedy. Every story is either a comedy or a tragedy. I don't know if that's true. The prison of being is not necessarily neither uh, comedic or tragic in and of itself. Maybe these are layered in some way so that prison can be interpreted as comedic or tragic. But I think that um, as a disposition, um, the comedy of being is slightly different than the tragedy of being. In fact, they're very different. Uh, but then the tragedy of being is different than the prison of being. But then there's a fourth disposition that I think I encounter, especially when I find relatively healthy uh, churches, relatively healthy religious practice, and that's the miracle of being. So being is a prison, being is a tragedy, being is a comedy, being is a miracle. And like I said, these are dispositions toward an ontological understanding. What is the nature of reality and our relationship to it and role within it are ultimately big uh, ontological questions, as the philosophers call them. And I think that these are the four big pictures. I might be missing some. I don't know what prison, tragedy, comedy, and miracle. And I don't think that it's something like you are one of these or that you have one of these. I think you may have sometimes more than one at once. It's certainly possible to be Gnostic and Hermetic in a certain way at the same time. I think that Marxism, and especially Marxism, I was going to say, and Hegel, Hegel to a degree, but Marx far more, figured out a way to combine the prison of being and tragedy of being into a single story. 
Um, it's certainly possible to uh, th- be simultaneously of disposition that we have a miraculous experience of being, that being itself is a miracle, but it's also kind of funny. In fact, it's absurd, a giant cosmic joke. Uh, you can hear that, for example, I mean, it's a little nerdy and it dates me to, to, to reference a Dave Matthews band song, but there's this Dave Matthews band song um, called Seek Up that was very popular. And I liked it quite a lot for a long time. I guess I still like it. I don't have any problem with it. And at one point it says, uh, if at all God's gaze upon us falls, it's with a mischievous grin, look at him. And then it's kind of got this musical, almost laughter. So God looking down on the miracle of his creation looks at us within it and sees it as a comedy. Ha ha. If at all God's gaze upon us falls, it's with a mischievous grin. Look at him. And I think that it's possible to embrace the idea that we occupy an absurd position within a generally miraculous being. I think there are arguments to be made from the long and thoughtful conversations I've had with many Jewish people that that's a very common disposition among observant Jews, and that they that there's this miracle to all being, but at the same time, it's funny. So I think that these aren't exclusive categories. I also don't think they're static categories. I think that you can especially elevate out of these. I think if you think that life or being existence itself is a prison, that that's something that you can actually shake your way out of. There are times in my life where I have felt that myself, and I do not feel that way now. So I'm quite convinced from my you know, personal lived experience that it is possible to escape the mind-forged manacles of the prison of being. And in fact, I believe that's where those manacles are. I believe that in that sense, if we take the, the phrasing that hell is, uh, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And when you decide to unlock them, you can just go out. But I wanted to, to elaborate on these a little bit. I'm not going to go too deep into this. It's just, like I said, it's just a thought experiment, just floating around thinking of man's relationship to ontological positions, I guess. It sounds a lot really highfalutin. But the Gnostic disposition is is the one that holds the, that being as a prison, that existence incarcerates us. And kind of the underlying feeling, almost ethic, that drives that mentality. If you have that disposition, what, what happens to you? What do you do with it? It has this, the disposition could be phrased, phrased as that which is must be otherwise. It can't be like this. It must be some other way in reality. And so Gnosticism gets dualistic and it separates the material from the spiritual entirely. And the spiritual is wholly clean and perfect and the material is wholly dirty and fallen and sinful. So the material world we find ourselves in can't be this way. The real nature of reality cannot possibly be this. It must be otherwise. And so we must escape it. And Gnosis is claiming to know this and sometimes to know how. And there are lots of thoughts on how the ancient Gnostic beliefs had these characters, if you will, called, I don't even know how to pronounce it. I've only seen it in writing, so make fun of me for not being able to pronounce it, I guess. It's either archons or archons. 
probably Archons, A-R-C-H-O-N. Maybe I'm saying it wrong still. I never have re- I've never heard the word. I've only seen it written. I know how to spell it. I can write it. And um, these are like demons that are like subordinate to the demiurge. So there's the, the, the Gnostic belief is that the world was created by this artisan demon, this artisanal demon that builds everything. The builder, the architect of the world. And he builds it out and it turns out that for whatever set of reasons, and there are various mythological stories given to this, but for whatever reason, creation of the material world itself is a sin or is done in sin. It is evil. It is fallen. And the Demiurge himself is an evil being that traps you within material existence. And your therefore holy, pure spirit as a human being, as a spiritual being, is incarcerated in not just your body, but also in being itself, in reality itself. And Gnosis is realizing that you are actually a spiritual being who is only falsely imprisoned. And you could escape the prison if you just understood the nature of your prison well enough. And that's the secret Gnosis. Maybe there are secret practices involved as well. And these archons or whatever are lesser demons, and there's often seven of them that correspond to the so-called seven planets, the Sun, the Moon, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, that the ancient world recognized. So in other words, the major seven celestial objects that are not stars, and they occupy the seven different planes, you know, seven heavens, the seventh heaven. You've heard of, you know, I'm on seventh heaven, or there was that dorky show called seventh heaven. Well, that's the idea is that these celestial spheres surrounding the world, the sun, the moon, and so on, up through Jupiter, Saturn, whatever they, whatever order they're in, it doesn't matter, um, are literally planes of existence. And the archons are like the gatekeeper guardian of those different planes of existence. And a lot of the Gnostic beliefs were that you have to be able to satisfy the questions, maybe like a sphinx or outwit or, you know, know the passcode or whatever to satisfy the Archon to get to the next level. So if you want to do ascend from the earthly plane to the first level and then to go to the second level, you'd have to be able to, under, to understand the, the your Gnosis would have to be deep enough to be able to satisfy the Archon on the first level. And then you'd have to be able to satisfy the Archon on the second level and the third level and the fourth level. And your level of spiritual attainment or enlightenment would uh, your gnosis, your level of gnosis, determine whether or not you could do that? And so there's this idea that it's like a seven or eight or whatever, however many layer prison, and there are prison guards, wardens that you have to try to satisfy to escape. And um, this this is the Gnostic disposition, though, that toward being itself, toward existence, that that we're in a prison, that it's miserable, that it shouldn't. In fact, not only should not it must not be this way. There must be a different understanding of reality. And we, if we want to be true to who and what we are in our true relationship to being, we must escape that. And so this is written all over the woke world. Oh, we're incarcerated in a male body or a female body or a straight body or whatever. And so we have to be able to transcend sexuality or we have to be able to transcend sex by stepping into gender identity, which is wholly social, and thus can be rendered transcendent, transition being a uh, practice of manifestation of that. 
and you kind of get the sense of what that's about. We live in a world that has systemic racism that is binding people by their racial categories that are being imposed on them by the system itself, the system that was created, not by anybody in particular, but by everybody simultaneously. And this system of racism incarcerates people within their races. It harms everybody, particularly people of color, particularly black, particularly indigenous, but it even even incarcerates people that are considered of dominant races, like they usually frame white because and, and, and Asian in some regards, because uh, those people are also bound by this this false division of race that's being imposed, even though they are often the ones participating in the imposition because allegedly they benefit from it. It must be otherwise. We must have equal spirits, which I fundamentally do agree with the concept that all men are created equal, at least in the sight of God. We don't know what our purposes are or nature's God. And so um, it must be otherwise. So we have to escape this prison. So rather though, rather than letting go of this, the Gnostic position on this is that we have to create a fully fledged mystery, uh, mysterious and esoteric religion that transmutes our entire society to escape the prison. We can't step outside of it ourselves. That would be selfish. Maybe that's the light side of it, that we can transcend it ourselves, that we can become colorblind, which they, of course, are crapping all over. That we can be post-racial. So you get this idea of feminism. There's this system of being called patriarchy that imprisons women, but by virtue of that, it imprisons men too. So feminism, they tell us, benefits men as well as women by setting us free, by helping us understand the prison of being that is the patriarchal system. And it must not be this way. There must be a way for men to be as men and women to be as women, absent the binary that defines them in relation to one another, which we must escape. These are the mentalities. There must be the case that the bourgeois mentality and the capitalist class sets up can be escaped. This system of oppression and exploitation cannot possibly be real, and that's Marxism. And how might we escape any of these particular prisons? Well, if we seize the means of production ourselves, if we become the archons, if we become the prison wardens, if we become the guards, then and take over the prison, then we can decide who gets to go free and who doesn't, or something. That seems to be how it works in practice, although they call this liberating people. And so that's the prison of being. The prison of being is a disposition toward being. If you believe that the world that we inhabit and the life that you have is a prison, you will act certain ways. You will be very pessimistic, very angry. Imagine that you were in prison and you felt like you were wrongly imprisoned and you were flung into prison for reasons you don't understand. You committed no crimes. All you were guilty of is being born the way that you are, and it's not fair. And if you believe that that's how the world is organized, that you have been flung into a prison, you will probably, when you become awakened to that belief, to that disposition of, ontolo of ontolo ontological uh, belief, you'll probably work as hard as you can to obliterate the prison or at least get out for yourself. So that's the Gnostic disposition. But then there's the Hermetic disposition, which is related to it, which is the tragedy of being. And that's what I think is the difference. I think that the Gnostic view is that, that, that you're in a prison, and that's not a tragedy. It's an injustice. 
It is the in, injustice of being is the prison of being. And that's really what motivates him. In my opinion, woke is both uh, Gnostic and Hermetic at the same time. It's fused them dialectically, synthesized them together. And the motivation that drives them, the hate, the envy, the malice, the overwhelming despair and negativity that drives them is the Gnostic impulse. But the goal is actually that this is a tragedy that we are in prison at all. And so we need to escape it. We need to escape the prison, but not by obliterating it, by transforming it. That's the hermetic thing. And in fact, maybe just transforming it ourselves. So the disposition that would be the tragedy of being, not necessarily the injustice. It's just tragic. There's this level of almost accepting that this is how it is. And if you look at the Gnostic and hermetic faiths in antiquity, this is how they were. The Gnostic faith is very pessimistic about being itself, whereas the hermetic faith is almost the same in most of the ways, but it's very optimistic about the nature of being itself, because it gives you something to do. You aren't unjustly trapped. You have something to do. Yeah, you're in a fallen world as a perfectly risen being, which is not so good. That's tragic. But you have something to do. Not just bust up the prison and try to get out, which if it's all of existence, you're not going to succeed at. But to change the prison into something different. That which is should be otherwise. Now compare that. That which is must be otherwise. That's a Gnostic disposition. But here, that which is should be otherwise. Should implies maybe we can do something about it. We have this vision of what the world ought to be. We wouldn't be in a tragedy of being at all if we had the ability to make the world as it should be. So the goal becomes to transform the world as it should be. So that's the hermetic disposition, that being itself is a tragedy. That which is in the world should be otherwise, so we should transform it into what it should be. We should transform ourselves into what we should be. In antiquity, the hermetic belief is that we are, in fact, God. We are, in fact, man is the third person of the triune God, of the, of the Trinitarian Godhead. It is... Uh, the absolute or the undifferentiated all, that's the Father. And then there is the thought or the mind of God, the Logos. Actually, the Logos and the Sophia together. And that is the second person of God, the self-begotten God. God giving his own thought and his thought takes form and that becomes the second person. And man is where that is uh, actualized into the world as it exists for whatever mythological reasons. And so we, in fact, are the third person of the Godhead that doesn't know that we're the third person of the Godhead. And when we're ascending through the spiritual levels, what we're actually doing is we begin by realizing we are the third person of the Godhead and we're shedding off the parts that prevent our own begetting to making ourselves. And this is visible, obviously, in the trans movement as well in modern times where they're making themselves into whom they were supposed to be as seen from the mind of God. This is why they say trans people are sacred. That's, as a matter of fact, the first belief you need. We are God. We are going to elevate ourselves to the level where we beget ourselves as we should have been because we're tragically not as we should have been. And if we understand how we should have been and work to manifest that, by whichever means, social constructivism says that actually the social constructions are the real contours of being. So if we seize the means of production of the social constructions of being, 
then we can force everybody to acknowledge our trans status or whatever, and we transform those into another uh, kind of disposition. You can actually see the difference between, or a difference here, between queer theory on this hand, which is much more hermetic, with a very strong Gnostic motivation underneath it called the closet, but it's much more hermetic than, say, CRT and Marxism, which are much more Gnostic. Um, the idea being uh, quite a bit different uh, between the two, uh, prison versus, you know, a process of transformation, not just of society, but of self. Um, it's a very different kind of disposition. But imagine that you have this disposition. What are you going to do? Well, the, if we talk about a light side and a dark side, and I don't, I'm not talking about in profound, you know, spiritual terms, Christians would say that this is just fundamentally all evil, and I'm not going to necessarily disagree. But if we say that there's a light side, the idea that you're going to transform yourself, kind of like the Buddhist religion, and enlighten yourself without regard necessarily to the world isn't particularly a dark path. Maybe it is on an ultimate spiritual side, but not on an individual personal side or in the social world that we inhabit. And then trying to transform everything to accommodate you, on the other hand, as say the trans movement does, um, probably is a very dark path. Trying to deconstruct and destroy the world that is not as it should be, pretty bad. So you can see the difference then between the prison of being, which is the Gnostic impulse, and the, her the, the tragedy of being, which is the hermetic impulse. If I'm thinking through this well, maybe I'm not, maybe this is crazy. But then we have this third disposition, the comedy of being. It's the comic disposition, for lack of a better name. And it kind of is based off of this idea that that which is could be otherwise. And there's a little bit of a difference between should be and could be, right? And maybe I have them backwards in that regard, but I think that should carries more moral impulse. It tells you that there is a duty of conscience. There is something that you must do. But I'm seeing this that which is could be otherwise as like a realm of possibility, which you don't really necessarily engage. You're like, eh, maybe I can't reach it. So you can imagine a more ideal world that we then laugh at the difference between our junky imposter and the ideal that we can imagine. There's this level of, of, of accepting through humor, um, that things aren't as maybe they could be. And maybe some of the things can change, but mostly it's a matter of having good humor and laughing at our lot. Uh, things aren't always the way that we want. And some of these things are kind of profoundly funny. We think of these kind of ironic situations all the time. I saw one on uh, Instagram a little bit ago that's sort of a stupid example, but it's the first thing that pops to mind. And it said, you know, exercising is supposed to give you more energy, but it takes energy to exercise, and this seems like some kind of a Ponzi scheme or something. It's a meme. Well, that's the comic disposition. You know? Ha 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 ha. There's this catch-22 to the energy levels involved in exercise. These kinds of things are, in a sense, humorous. And um, like I said, I think that I see this disposition very commonly uh, in good-natured and observant Jewish people who have kind of accepted the broad uh, the, the, the broad set of challenges of life and learn to see just how many things in life are absurd. Um, and there are some truly absurd things. I mean, a lot of our jokes 
tap into these. I think one of my favorite old jokes to this effect is three people, three engineers are sitting around in a bar debating the nature of God, which by the way, it would be similar to debating the nature of being. And so they're debating the nature of God. And the, the first guy who happens to be a mechanical engineer says, well, God is clearly a mechanical engineer. Look at the joints, look at the tendons, look at the way that everything's put together so that we can move so efficiently, so well. And the second guy says, well, that's a good argument, but I'm an electrical engineer and I understand that God absolutely must have been an electrical engineer. Because look at the nerves, look at how it's all innervated, look at how the electrical system of the body works in actually somewhat mysterious ways. It's rather profound that you can have a chemical being that operates as a body electric. It's just fascinating in the way that it's wired, in the way that the action potentials work. This could only have been designed by an electrical engineer of tremendous sophistication, so God is an electrical engineer. And the third guy just starts laughing at the whole discussion, because... He understands the absurdity. And he says, this is all cute, but frankly, we all know that God is a civil engineer. And they say, well, what in the world are you talking about? You know, a civil engineer, really? Like parking lots, roadways, bridges? And he's like, well, you just have to ask yourself, who else is going to run a toxic waste pipeline down the middle of a recreational area? And there's an absurdity to this, right? There's an absurdity to that. Um, when you get the joke, it's funny. These things are funny. Um, a lot of things are funny when you sit back and look at them. And uh, this comic disposition, I think, is actually generally healthy in that it accepts, without being fatalistic, that which is beyond our control. Rather than seeing that which is out there that's dissatisfying is something that should be otherwise, so we must transform, or something that must be otherwise, so that we reject and try to seize or overthrow. It's so, There's this acceptance without like taking it on in comedy. There's laughing about it. Well, it is what it is, but it's funny, and at least we can laugh about it, so it doesn't psychologically impact us. But there's still this idealism kind of behind it. I mean, that's okay. Comedy is, is good. It's healthy. It's good to laugh. There are many functions of humor, one of which is to relieve the stress and the frustration of an absurd circumstance. Um, there are others we don't have to get into. But this is a third, I think, disposition toward being itself, which is just something interesting to think about. And it's clearly different than seeing life as a tragedy. When we look at the kind of Greek uh, dichotomy of drama, that drama, every story is either a tragedy or a comedy, the idea that it's properly funny, that things don't always work out, is much different than the uh, disposition that it's tragic, that it's not some other way, and that maybe we have to do something about it, or in fact, that it's fully unjust that reality isn't accommodating us, which I think is purely toxic. There's very little toxicity in the comic disposition, but there could be a light side and a dark side, and I think there is. I mean, there's there's humor that gets pretty, um, pretty dark, and I don't mean in the sense of making light of bad situations or you know death or whatever these kinds of things. There are funny, um, dark humor jokes. There are truly funny ones, uh, truly illuminating ones as well. I won't tell any at the moment, but I know a couple. But I have a penchant for some dark humor. Uh, it's true. Um, 
I'll tell you something I mention a lot. I have no death wish. However, make that be known to the FBI. I have no death wish. People who know about the FBI, I have no death wish. But I make jokes all the time. He's like, well, you know, what do you hope is going to happen in the near future is kind of a conversation that kind of comes up in various ways a lot. And sometimes, and I can't think of a proper context where I would feel this, but I've done this publicly many times and I make the joke that maybe the plane will go down because what I do is sometimes a bit exhausting. That's dark humor. I don't mean it, but it's funny. It, it alleviates the stress, you know, um, I say, for example, there's no reading communism or the, when, when, when you're dead. I used to say when I was a mathematician, there's no math when you're dead. <laughs> this is dark humor. This is a comedy of being disposition, I think. And it's different than the tragedy of being. I don't think it's tragic that life can be uh, crappy sometimes or that things don't work out or that things are hard. I think that a lot of times there are ways to laugh at our circumstances, laugh at our smallness, laugh at ourselves for our thinking things should go our way. It's a good way to dissipate in the entitlement that comes with those other two. You have to be entitled to believe that you've been flung into a prison against your will just because you're alive. You are entitled to the idea that the world should accommodate how you wanted to feel or that it should be so much different. And so you're entitled to that. So there's a dark side and there's a light side. Humor is, is, is very, um, very enlightening in a lot of ways. It can cut through a lot of uh, entrenched beliefs. It can help you laugh your way out of stupid beliefs like that we live in a Gnostic prison or that we uh, constantly have to think about how the world should have been otherwise. Um, but then there's this fourth disposition that I really appreciate. And like I said, it's, it's present most commonly in my experience in healthy religious environments. But although I saw it in the new atheist movement, frankly, so you can say that they were taking a kind of science. I don't think they were necessarily being scientistic. I think they were being naturalistic, but sometimes both, sometimes either, sometimes those were present, but there was this wonder of being the greatest show on earth from Richard Dawkins that I mentioned earlier, the wonder of science. There's a book he wrote. I have it somewhere. I got it a long time ago. I don't know if I have it in this room looking around as I ramble. Um, he wrote a book for children or teenagers at one point that was based off of the greatest show on earth but for younger people. And it was something about wonder. I was trying to see if I could find it and tell you the title. I have basically three bookcases in my house and one of them's in my office. The other two are not, and I don't know where it is, but uh, I don't think it's in here. But it was an interesting book, but the idea was in fact to give people the idea that the scientific enterprise can be a wonder and awe-inducing experience. Finding out the secrets of the universe scientifically, which, you know, in this way, in some sense, you're talking about, um, from a Christian perspective, maybe even an Aquinian perspective, that you're figuring out God's creation, although Richard Dawkins wouldn't frame it that way, and that there's some kind of marvelous, awe-inspiring experience. Whether you think the world was created, that the world is, you can find it fascinating and awe-inspiring and bigger than you and something to aspire to. Uh, and miraculous, frankly, miraculous that it is the way that it is, that we have the opportunity to be here to see it. I think in one of these books that Richard Dawkins wrote, I forget which one, maybe The God Delusion, maybe it's somewhere. He had a 
it wasn't the God delusion, but maybe it was. I don't know. I don't remember. But he used to have this talk he would give about we are the lucky ones. Out of all of the possibilities of DNA that would produce a human being, the overwhelming majority of them, of those combinations, has never been born and never will be born and never gets to experience life and all of its ups and downs, all of its challenges and all of its wonder. And so we, in fact, are the lucky ones, whatever that means, is this is a miraculous, you know, miracle of being disposition to the experience that we have, that our relationship to existence, that we are fortunate to have been somebody who got to experience the world. And so this is based off of the idea, not that that which is must be otherwise or should be otherwise or could be otherwise, but that that which is, is good. It's intrinsically good in some way. It is intrinsically a miracle that we are here, so we should celebrate it. Whatever it means to exist, whatever existence itself means, whatever it is to be in that existence, it's special. It's amazing. It's wonderful. It's awe-inspiring. It's something we should be humble against and fearful of and cheerful about and miraculous. It's miraculous. So we should celebrate that. I know I was going to say worship, but that might be too much uh, for the broad expression. But this is a religious disposition toward life, whether Mr. Dawkins would agree with that or not. I don't know a better word for it. And maybe somebody could come up with one. Again, I'm just doing a thought experiment. This miraculous relationship to the nature of existence, though, is fundamentally psychologically different than the other three. While the comedy of being, I think, has very healthy potentials within it, the tragedy of being actually has some healthy aspects. You definitely could motivate making that which we're dealing with better. You're not going to transform that which is, by the way. That which is, in the sense of physical reality, will not change. But we, can, we can't change the world. We can order the world, and we can order the world in better or worse ways. But that understanding that you know what we're suffering is, ne- is not necessarily um, something we have to deal with, whether it's extreme heat or you know, diseases born by mosquitoes or whatever that we can do something about. Uh, we don't have to accept the tragedy of being. So there are light sides to these, but the miracle of being is just a fundamentally different mindset. And if you can tap into that, it becomes very difficult to be very negative, becomes impossible to believe in the prison of being. Those are, in fact, perhaps completely opposed, not even diametrically opposed, which would suggest that they're in some relationship on the same circle. They are fundamentally opposed to one another. If you believe that our our, our presence in the world, our experience of the world, whatever it means to be in the world, is fundamentally a miracle you have an attitude of gratitude and wonder, and uh, it's very positive. It's very healthy. And I strongly encourage people to look for ways to tap into that. I think that this is something that you can connect to. Um, I think that this is something that you can ponder for yourself and find your way out of the uh, hell with, with the gates locked from the inside that is the prison of being that so many people think they're in. You can move from a resentful to a grateful and responsible position in life um, simply by recognizing that our experience in the world is miraculous. Um, 
Maybe you can't maintain that all the time. Maybe it's difficult. It'd be a wondrous thing maybe if you could, but I find myself very frequently, uh, presently, torn between the comedy of being and the miracle of being. I type LOL. I know Jordan Peterson would call me a narcissist for that. In fact, we had a funny moment when we talked together on camera about that because he said something about this, and I type LOL literally dozens of times a day. Ha ha. Um, but I'm laughing at the absurdity of being. And Maybe when he says that there's something narcissistic about it, it taps into this disposition that, well, you, to laugh, must think things could be otherwise. Maybe he's saying that you think that you just know so much better that all you can do is laugh at these poor schmucks who don't. I don't know. But that's beside the point. This isn't about Jordan Peterson. I think I find myself spending most of my time between those two dispositions, and it is a much better life, and I do much better with everything than when I spent more of my time stuck in the kind of mixture of prison and tragedy of being. And so I guess if I had to give, you know, a message, what is this? Why, why am I doing this thought experiment other than I thought it was interesting and I wanted to share it. And I think that there's something important to it. Uh, at the end of the day, I think that, um, it's very important to pause and try to assess where you are. Do you feel flung into a life you never asked for and you don't want? When, you, when we look at religious people talking, or Christians in particular, Jewish, Jewish people also studying the Bible, and, and, and they're looking at this, and they say, you know, over and over and over again, you hear the story of God calling somebody or in the Old Testament laying something upon somebody uh, that they have to do that's not necessarily pleasant that they're being asked to do. And a lot of times they're like, yeah, right, I'm not going to do that. Or they're like, that's ridiculous or that's impossible or whatever. Um you kind of have this sense, you know, did I get flung into something that I didn't really want to have to do? And you could think of this as some kind of an injustice and rage against it. You could think of it as tragic and a disaster. You could get into the grumbling and all of that. You could also think of it as, you know, absurd um, and brush it off. Or you could think of it as a charge. And it gives your life a lot of purpose when you do that. Maybe you don't necessarily believe explicitly in, in the religious aspects, but that you have been for whatever reasons, you've seen something that needs to do and you are, interestingly enough, in the position to be able to do it. And you might be screaming or crying out like a piss baby, why me? To which, as Christopher Hitchens famously acknowledged, the universe will barely manage to reply why not, which you might slip into comedy and laugh. It's absurd. It's funny. Why me? Well, why not? Ha <laughs> I think that finding your way into knowing which of these dispositions you're spending your time in and thinking about whether or not those might be premised on entitlement or misinterpretations or, in fact, self-limiting interpreta interpretations of your life and that you might invite yourself to others, uh, I think is a useful activity. I think it is useful to see challenges as opportunities and to ask yourself what you have to do to see them as opportunities or to see uh, tragedies as comedies, as potential comedies, as places where there are things to, to laugh about rather than to be dismayed about or stressed out about. I found that in my life, the vast majority of things that seem terrible at the time become funny stories later. Tragedies seem to become comedies as uh, we move forward there are true tragedies, though. Of course, not to diminish any of those, but many of the things we think are tragedies are actually comedies in waiting. 
Um, there's a certain humor in that later after you gain the perspective. But I think it's a the message would be that you should spend time asking yourself which dispositions toward existence itself you have. Not what is the nature of existence. That's a big question. Maybe it's for you to wrestle with and maybe it's not. But what is your relationship to it? This is a question of rather than wrestling with God, which is what Israel means, of course, uh, asking yourself what your relationship to God is. Because, I mean, if God is God, then God's going to beat you in the wrestling match, so you're going to have to deal with that. Um, so do you feel like that's a injustice, you Gnostic? Do you feel like that's a tragedy, and so that maybe you could take that position and make it different later? Do you think it's kind of hilarious and you laugh about it and get on with life? Do you think it's kind of a miracle that you have the opportunities put before you even though you don't recognize them or always like what they are? I think that we can spend time thinking about that. And I think that we can move ourselves and help other people move because I see it happen, these transformations in life that happen in churches so frequently. I think that this is one of the kinds of messages that frequently achieves that. And so, I don't know, it was a thought. It was a thought that crossed my head. I thought it was interesting. I mulled it over. I wanted to share it. So thank you for exploring it with me. Don't really have any bigger takeaway, uh, but it's worth considering. And I think moving away from the more negative views can help people move out of the motivations that drag them into the mire of woke and Marxism and dissatisfaction that urges people into those places and lead to a living a better life. <laughs>